the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Today we're going to talk with Rita Dunaway. She's the author of Restoring America's Soul, Advancing Timeless Conservative Principles in a Wayward Culture. She, uh, well, I'll wait. We'll talk about it. That's coming up uh, later this hour. We're also going to talk with Amy Swearer. She's a legal policy analyst in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. The uh, anniversary of the uh, tragic Parkland school shooting has come. We're going to look at uh, some of the prescriptions that have been considered or applied and whether or not they're actually dealing with the issue. But first, some of the developing headlines, 1,159 pages. This bipartisan border compromise is completed. The president says, or has indicated, at least through uh, Mitch McConnell, that he will sign it. Congressional bargainers uh, late last night completed the 1,159-page border security compromise. I'm certain nobody has thoroughly read. It gives the president less than a quarter of the uh, uh, $5.7 billion he wanted to build the wall with Mexico. Summaries of the legislation say that besides nearly $1.4 million, uh, rather, billion dollars to build new barriers, There's over $1 billion for other border security programs. That includes money for inspection equipment for border ports of entry. There's more than $400 million in humanitarian aid for detained migrants, plus funds to buy aircraft and to hire 600 more customs officers and additional immigration judges. Lawmakers have until 11.59 p.m. on uh, Friday. The House is poised to uh, vote here uh, momentarily to get the agreement through both houses of Congress signed by the president before several cabinet-level departments shut down and hundreds of thousands of federal workers are furloughed in what would be the second partial government shutdown this year. The measure would begin reducing the number of unauthorized immigrants the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency can detain. Congressional approval is expected, um, uh, and the president's signature is uh, considered likely. Uh, Congressional negotiators announced on Monday that they'd reached an agreement in principle on border security funding that includes more than $1.3 billion for physical barriers along along the U.S.-Mexico border. The White House initially requested $5.7 billion for that border wall. Well, House Democrats are planning expansive Trump probes, even after Mueller's report. Uh, He's a friend now, not so much if the the report isn't as scathing as they're hoping. No matter when and how special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe ends, House Democrats are planning to aggressively ramp up their own Trump-related investigations. That will include a network of committees and high-profile public hearings likely to last well into the 2020 election year. That's quite a coincidence. Uh, in It's unclear, rather, at this point, when the special counsel's investigation into Russian meddling and uh, potential collusion with the Trump campaign associates will be complete, though several officials have said that the probe is nearing an end. 
But the uh, Mueller report, uh, Mueller report, will not mark the end of Russian investigations. House Democrats have ramped up their own efforts to investigate the president on matters related to Russia, his personal finances, his relationship with and communication with foreign officials and more. House committees involved in investigations related to uh, Trump include the House Financial Services Committee, led by Representative Maxine Waters, the House Intelligence Committee, led by Representative Adam Schiff, House Foreign Affairs Committee, led by Representative Elliot Engel, and the House Oversight Committee, led by Representative Jared Nadler, which also would lead to the charge on any potential impeachment proceedings. They are chomping at the bit to begin. Representative Liz Cheney enters draft summary of Green New Deal into the congressional record. Uh, House Republicans announced on Wednesday that they have entered an online um, uh, version of the controversial Green New Deal and a list of frequently asked questions about the sweeping Democratic proposal into the congressional record after the document was deleted from the website of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's very important the American people see that they are that they're be transparency about what Democrats are pushing. Representative Liz Cheney, Republican out of Wyoming, told reporters at the House GOP's weekly press conference. And we call on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to put this up for a vote on the floor. Well, Cheney's request for Pelosi to put the Green New Deal resolution up for a vote on the House floor follows a similar move from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who said on Tuesday that he would bring the matter before the upper chamber of Congress to give everybody an opportunity to go on the record. The Green New Deal is already supported by at least five senators seeking the Democratic nomination for president, Cory Booker of New Jersey, Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, Kamala Harris of California, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, and Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders, who could also enter the Democratic primary, is another supporter. Klobuchar described the Green New Deal as aspirational in an interview on Tuesday um, on Special Report with Brett Baer. Meanwhile, U.S. Representative Ilhan Omar uh, blasted President Trump's special envoy to Venezuela on Wednesday over his history of supporting right-wing governments in Latin America and his guilty plea in 1991 to two misdemeanor counts of lying to Congress, but started by calling him the wrong name. Omar called Elliot Abrams the envoy, Mr. Adams. Uh, she went on to ask why, she, why he would, uh, should believe Uh, be believed on Wednesday after previously withholding information decades ago about the Iran-Contra affair. A heated exchange ensued in which Abrams uh, said it was an attack. Omar later posted a video of the interaction tweeting, peace, justice, human rights, those are the values I hold dearest and I will not apologize for them. But she left out the part where she called Abrams the wrong name. Uh, Adams, uh, or Abrams, now I'm doing the same thing. Um, Abrams also told the committee that he believes increasing international pressure will eventually lead to the ouster of President Nicolas Maduro. He did not uh, predict when Maduro would step down, but Abrams uh, said a storm is brewing inside his government and the Venezuelan leader will not be able to weather it much longer. Sort of a prediction that the uh, Democrats are making for the president currently in the White House. Well, a Minnesota man has pled guilty to sexually assaulting two daughters in a house of horrors, as it's being referred to in Minnesota. The man admitted Wednesday to physically and sexually abusing his developmentally disabled twin daughters over the course of several years in a case the local media dubbed House of Horrors. I won't go into detail, but that's the way to describe the damage he has done. The Minneapolis Star Tribune reported that doctors uh, who examined uh, the women found that they had suffered injuries that were clinically diagnostic of torture, um, among other things. I, again, won't go into much more detail. 
Uh, Well, the ball officially gets rolling today on that bipartisan budget agreement reached earlier this week. And as I mentioned, the House is on the verge of uh, casting their ballots in favor of or in opposition to that agreement, which we learned from Mitch McConnell, the president intends to sign, which is really quite breathtaking. There are so many prohibitions as to um, where the wall can be placed, what money can used and can be used and how it literally hamstrings moving forward with any kind of a barrier. Um, Anyway, according to Yahoo News, former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe says that after President Trump fired his boss, FBI Director James Comey, there were discussions within the Department of Justice about invoking the 25th Amendment to remove the president from office. However, in a statement released by the Justice Department, Rosenstein said McCabe's account of a discussion of invoking the 25th Amendment was inaccurate and factually incorrect story needs to play out, but there's certainly some evidence that the DOJ was gearing up to obstruct Trump. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Taking a look at some of the headline news, according to Politico, a federal judge ruled in favor of Robert Mueller on Wednesday that Paul Manafort intentionally violated the terms of his guilty plea by lying to federal prosecutors and a grand jury, clearing the way for the special counsel to push for a harsher sentence. All told, Manafort, Manafort rather, whose uh, sentencing will occur on the 13th of March could face a decade behind bars. A potentially significant move transpired uh, courtesy of Senate Rules Committee, which yesterday approved a change to the rules to shorten the debate time for judicial nominees. Currently, up to 30 hours of debate time is allowed before a nominee is approved for service. But if the new rule if, is approved in the, on the Senate floor, it will reduce the maximum time to just two hours. This could provide major inroads towards splintering the Democrats' obstruction tactics. But of course, the Democrats will be in power at some point and the Republicans won't. These things tend to come back and bite the party who established them for their own benefit, their own short-term benefit. Well, according to the Washington Post, the House Judiciary Committee passed a measure on Wednesday that would require background checks for all gun sales and most gun transfers within the United States, the most significant gun control legislation to advance this far in Congress in years. Now, again, this is the House Judiciary Committee. The committee also voted 23 to 15 to advance a bill that would close a loophole in the current background check law that allows a gun purchase Uh, If a check is not completed in three days, for the record, new background checks still wouldn't have prevented recent mass shootings. In fact, we're going to talk with Amy Swearer about that in the uh, at the top of the five o'clock hour. Well, about that peak oil narrative that the president referenced during the State of the Union address, the Houston Chronicle reveals that, and I'm quoting, crude oil production in Texas has beaten a previous record set in the 1970s, a new report from the Texas Independent Producers Royalty Owners Association. Texas oil wells produced more than 1.54 billion barrels of crude in 2018, beating the previous record of 1.28 billion barrels set in 1973. Natural gas production also grew, reaching 8.8 trillion cubic feet in in 2018, Texas Governor Greg Abbott observes, as the national leader in oil and natural gas production, Texas is paving the way for America's energy independence. And Amazon is among the world's elite corporation that will not, by the way. Um, well, I want to get into that. It's uh, it's hovered around one trillion dollars in market value for some time now, and yet it won't be spending any income on taxes to Uncle Sam. The Week reports Amazon, which doubled its profits and made more than $11 billion in 2018, won't pay any federal income taxes 
uh, for the second year in a row. The Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy reported on Wednesday the company will not be required to pay the standard 21 percent income tax rate on its 2018 profits and is claiming a tax rebate of one hundred and twenty nine million, which ITEP uh, describes as a tax rate of negative one percent. Some might say billionaire socialist Jeff Bezos isn't paying his fair share. Well, unfortunately, one year after the tragic loss of 17 lives in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, many lawmakers and advocacy groups still insist on offering ineffective measures. We're going to talk a bit later with Amy Swearer, who points out what's being considered and what the uh, data tells us about what might actually work. That's coming up uh, later in the uh, next hour. And on this day in 2018, a gunman identified as a former student opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle in Marjorie Stoneman in Florida, killing 17 people in the nation's deadliest school shooting since the attack in Newtown, Connecticut, more than five years earlier. And on this day in 1929, St. Valentine's Day, the massacre took place in a Chicago garage as seven rivals of Al Capone's gang were gunned down. As James Blend always points out, the... uh, Date of St. Valentine's Day is the day of his death rather than celebrating his birth or some other aspect of his life. So I guess it's not too far off to mention the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Well, William Barr was confirmed on Thursday by the Senate to serve as President Trump's next attorney general, sending him to uh, lead a Justice Department whose past officials have come under sharp criticism from the president over the ongoing Russian investigation Barr will now oversee. Several Democrats joined nearly all the Republicans in confirming Barr, 68, a longtime lawyer who served as attorney general from 91 to 93 under the late President George Herbert Walker Bush. He was confirmed uh, with 54-45 vote. Three Democrats, Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinoma, uh, Alabama Senator Doug Jones, and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, um, voted to confirm Barr. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul was the lone GOP nay. A Barr will be sworn in uh, this afternoon, if not already, in the Oval Office at the White House. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts will administer the oath of office. Well, Barr becomes the second a full-fledged attorney general of the Trump administration. The president upset over his um, recusal in the Russia investigation fired former attorney general Jeff Sessions from running the uh, Justice Department the day after the 2018 midterm elections. Matthew Whitaker has uh, served as acting attorney general during that vacancy. Well, who is William Barr, our new, uh, our next attorney general? Some things to, uh, uh, to consider. Um, Barr told the Senate Judiciary Committee that he would uh, diligently implement the First Step Act, which is the biggest criminal reform legislation passed in recent years. He also said that he would concentrate on chronic violent criminals as well as the on the violence uh, rearing its head in the political realm. Hopefully that means the department will investigate those who foment political violence and prosecute them in their actions or if their actions violate federal criminal law. Uh, He says he will enforce immigration laws. Uh, He made it clear he wouldn't back away from the president's uh, number one priority, the enforcement of our immigration laws as they exist. As he said, we have the most liberal and expansive immigration laws in the world, but um, counter uh, countenancing rather the lawlessness of illegal aliens who flout our legal system by crashing in through the back door would be grossly unfair to those abiding by the law. 
Uh, Barr testified that election integrity is one of the foundations of our nation that is fundamental to the peaceful transition of power through elections. There is much to be done in this area, particularly because it's something the um, prior administration entirely neglected. Uh, That includes everything from finally going after states that refuse to maintain the accuracy of their voter registration rolls as required under federal law to prosecuting election crimes such as aliens who illegally register and vote. And also, um, the new attorney general says that he will renew the FISA sunset provision. Uh, Three key laws that help protect our nation's security uh, are set to expire in December. The attorney general has, um, or the soon-to-be attorney general, has extensive experience on the utility of these provisions and should lay the groundwork now to get Congress to uh, reauthorize those tools early. The three provisions are the business record provision, the FISA Section 501, roving wiretaps, or FISA Section 105, and the lone wolf amendment, FISA Section 101. Again, Barr is expected, if he hasn't already been um, sworn in, uh, to be sworn in before the end of the day. Former Vice President Joe Biden is almost certain to run for president in 2020. That's according to a source with direct knowledge speaking to Fox News on Thursday. The source said the timing of an announcement is still up in the air. Uh, With such a crowded field of Democrats hopefuls, Biden wants to keep big donors and potential staffers with him and has been conducting uh, outreach to former colleagues, grassroots activists and uh, contributors, the source said. Uh, It was also confirmed through two sources that California Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein met privately Thursday morning with Biden. The sources said Feinstein expects Biden to run Uh, a Friends of Joe group, uh, which has been inactive since 2016, has been busy with a flurry of emails, conversations and activities. The source said the group comprises longtime aides, donors, supporters and friends. So Vice President Joe Biden will very likely throw his hat in the ring if this uh, inside source is to be believed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with Rita Dunaway. She is a, a constitutional attorney and author of Restoring America's Soul. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And it's after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest says that a divided, polarized Congress can be fixed by an article already present in the U.S. Constitution. In her new book, Restoring America's Soul, Advancing Timeless Conservative Principles in a Wayward Culture, attorney, author, and radio personality Rita Dunaway, she says that when Congress becomes out of control and no longer represents what the American people stand for, there is a solution. Uh, we see the federal government, which is supposed to be a government of limited, specific, enumerated powers, regulating almost every area of our lives. This is not how it was meant to be. The Article 5 Convention for Proposing Amendments provides a positive, proactive, constitutional way for us to restore Washington, D.C. to its proper limited role here in America. Well, my guest, Rita Dunaway, is a constitutional attorney and serves as the uh, national legislative strategist for the Convention of States Project. She co-hosts a radio show, Crossworlds, where faith and culture meet, which airs in over a dozen country, uh, uh, counties rather, in Virginia, West Virginia and Maryland. She is a syndicated columnist whose weekly commentaries appear both online and in print publications. She encourages state lawmakers to use their constitutional authority to restore the robust federal system designed by the Constitution, which I think most kids have no uh, clue about because it's no longer taught. Orita Dunaway, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for 
having me. I'm delighted to spend part of my Valentine's Day with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we appreciate that you're willing to. Now, this is a a rather obvious question. I think if we've been following what's happening in the news at all, we might be able to answer this question for you. But what motivated you to write uh, this book in particular at this time? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Um, First of all, as Christians, we have a duty to be salt and light to a culture that today is just dark and vulgar and deceived. And we need to equip ourselves to be able to present truth winsomely, graciously, and persuasively. Uh, So that was number one for me is my desire to help Christians in particular and conservatives in general understand how we might do a better job of articulating the principles that we believe so strongly in. But also, as you know, you mentioned my role with the Convention of States Project, and this is just a great passion of mine. You know, it's painful to me to witness every day all the ways that our federal government has Uh, really just gone beyond Mm -hmm. the constitutional limits on its authority. And so now we have this way that we can use the power of the states to rebalance the power between the states and the federal government. And so I'm really eager to help people understand what that is all about and how that power can be used. Well, I think that's so important because I don't think that's being uh, taught and People no longer have an appreciation, regard, or understanding of the system of government we were born into because it no longer reflects what was originally intended. That's absolutely right. You know, the founders created this brilliant federal system. And as you mentioned, the whole idea was that the powers of the national government, the federal government, were strictly limited to those powers that were listed out for it in the Constitution. And then the state governments were left with much broader power, and they were the ones meant to do most of the policymaking that actually governs and touches the everyday lives of people. But if you look at what we have now, that's really been turned on its head to where Congress acts more like this sort of super legislature that just is more powerful than the state government, and they regulate every area of our lives, and it's just absolutely not what was intended or set forth in our Constitution. Now, I want to talk, as you do in the book, about how to restore America's soul. But before we do that, let's talk about how we should define conservatism. You make reference to um, conversations you've heard in which conservatives define conservatism as people who don't like change, which uh, is a pretty shallow (laughs) answer. But I know one of the things that motivated you in writing the book was to help us better understand what does it mean to be a conservative? Yeah, that's right. The The definition I found for a conservative that I like the best is that a conservative is a conserver of the things we hope to keep. Someone who wants to conserve what is good in our culture and in our government. And, you know, that's one of the areas in which I think the conservative movement really needs to improve. You know, we've gotten so used to having to Uh, tell the rest of the country that we're opposed to government policies, we're opposed to this and that, that it seems like anymore we're not so good at telling people what it is we're for. Uh, 
And that's so important, especially when we look at young people today. We need to be able to cast a positive, appealing vision for them. We need to be able to tell people what we are for and not just what we're against. Well, as you know, there have been a string of politicians over the last decade or more who have said all the right things, who have indicated that they share the same core values and principles of conservative voters, only to fail to um, move forward on, on those very initiatives. I think a lot of people are frustrated, angry, and discouraged. What do you say to those who have just simply shrugged their shoulders, thinking there's no longer room in the United States for a conservative movement that's effective and that can be heard? I would say we need to engage more and not less in both our culture and in politics. We need to raise our standards, never lower them. And, you know, I talk about culture and politics as sort of two different tracks. When it comes to our culture, we need to keep speaking truth and we need to start at home. In our own families, in our own churches, we need to be speaking and discerning and acknowledging what's true. In the realm of politics and government, I really do point to this Article 5 effort, the Convention of States Project, and your listeners can learn more at conventionofstates.com. I really do point to that as the positive, practical solution. We've come to the point where just trying to elect good people, trying to send good people to Washington, that isn't a real solution anymore. Because the problem isn't just a personnel problem. The problem is now a structural problem. We need the states to use their power to check and balance Washington by proposing constitutional amendments that will restrain the federal government. Now, let's again talk about how that's possible. I think people may have in the back of their mind, if they have any thought at all about the Constitution and what it uh, provides for us, if we are no longer satisfied with what the federal government is doing, that this sort of um, willy-nilly, out-of-control convention in which uh, pronouncements are made that essentially change the core value and principles of our constitutional republic. But that's not what you're talking about, and that's not what the Constitution provides for. That's exactly right, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to address that. Yeah, no one is proposing what's referred to as a constitutional convention, which is what we had in 1787, where delegates of the state got together specifically to revise the system of government, and they drafted the constitution that we have now. That's not what this is. Article 5 is in our current Constitution. It's part of the Constitution, and it provides the two different ways we have to amend the Constitution. And there's one way where Congress can propose the amendments, and that's how we've gotten the 27 amendments we have today. But the other power, which has never yet been used, is the power of the state to propose constitutional amendments when 34 of them or two-thirds of the state agree that amendments are needed on a certain topic. So it's not about rewriting the Constitution or a new Constitution. It's about proposing amendments on particular topics. And it's important for everyone to understand that either way the amendments get proposed, whether Congress does the proposing or the states do it, they always have to be ratified Mm -hmm. by 38 
states, which is a very high bar. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Rita Dunaway. She's the author of Restoring America's Soul, Advancing Timeless Conservative Principles in a Wayward Culture. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Thank you, Clark, for the Valentine's music. We don't normally play that, but it's been kind of fun to listen to some of those songs. We're talking uh, this afternoon with the author of Restoring America's Soul. Rita Dunaway is a constitutional attorney, and she suggests that conservatives first need to understand what it means to be a conservative and then to consider what tools are in the uh, the toolkit to move forward. Uh, and a convention of the states, which is different than a constitutional convention, is a possible starting point. Let me ask you what are some of the things that conservatives have done wrong um, that have brought us to this pass? Well, one is something that I've already alluded to, and that is giving in to the temptation to be people who are just constantly complaining Mm -hmm. about what government is doing that we don't want it to do. Um, But there are other examples that have to do with specific issues that we care about. You know, and an example of that is the marriage issue. You know, we um, sort of let things slide for a long time when we started to see high statistical numbers of cohabitation and divorce. And, you know, it seems like there wasn't a huge outcry from the church when it came to those sorts of attacks on the institution of marriage. But then when it came to gay marriage, all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. you know, we were awakened and um, we wanted to talk about that a whole lot. So I think, you know, that's an example of of an area where we sort of um, let down on our integrity a little bit at the beginning of the erosion of that principle um, and we're slow to to really respond. Yeah, lagging behind can be very costly, as we've seen in that area and others as well. Well, let's talk about the convention of the states as a possible starting point uh, to uh, rein in the federal government. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, for me, I'll just share that this whole um, being uncomfortable with what was happening in our country started when I was in law school. I remember in my constitutional law classes sitting there thinking, what is it that I'm missing? Because here we have a constitution that we can fit in our pockets, and yet the government that it describes is very different from the government that is actually operating in Washington, D.C. And what I came to understand through years of experience and study is that what has happened is that the language of the Constitution over time has really been twisted and stretched by, uh, you know, first of all, federal overreach, but then by the Supreme Court saying, yes, what, what Congress is doing is okay because we're going to interpret this clause like the General Welfare Clause, for instance. We're going to interpret it broadly to allow what Congress is doing. And so over time, with decades and decades of twisting constitutional language, what we have now is a government that no longer resembles the very limited, defined federal government we were meant to have. And that is exactly why the way to resolve that issue from a practical and procedural standpoint is to 
proposed constitutional amendments that actually correct in black and white those um, perverted constitutional language, you know, the phrases and terms that have been twisted by the courts over the years. Now, the book we're talking about is divided into uh, into three parts. Part one is a conservative identity crisis. Part two, tough issues, persuasive conservatism. And I love that phrase. It's not enough to just shake one's fist and speak loudly. We need to be persuasive. And the third part are the two strategies you've referenced for restoring America's uh, soul. How optimistic are you that there's sufficient will, there's understanding of what the Constitution permits, uh, that this is a real possibility in the 21st century? Well, you know, I think that's part of the beauty of the Convention of State Project. That's part of why I love, you know, getting to work on it every day is that what we're really doing is we're helping people to remember, you know, what's actually in the Constitution. And we're teaching the younger generation what it says and what it means. We're reminding people that they, the people in America, are, are really the ultimate authority and that we have this power through Article 5 working through our state governments to restrain federal overreach. So I am optimistic, you know, and at the end of the day, as I said at the beginning, it is our duty as Christians to be salt and light to the culture. It's our duty to carry the banner of truth and I'm just excited about doing that in any way that I can. Well, it's encouraging to hear that optimism in your voice. As you know, there are those who interpret the Constitution as a living document, that what is plainly said is not precisely what it means, that it's a document that evolves over time and uh, reflects the current uh, norms of of the times. What do you say to those who say, yes, the the Constitution did say, Uh, limited government at one point, but today we're reflecting more the priorities of the people rather than uh, what the Constitution's original intent was. Mm -hmm. I'd say if you believe that, if you really believe that we have an organic Constitution, then you, you don't believe we live under the rule of law. Because if what the Constitution says and and what it means is whatever a Supreme Court justice decides that it should mean or it should have said, then that's not the rule of law. That's the rule of judges. And that is not the basis for our system of government. Our our government was founded uh, securely on the basis of the rule of law. And I submit that if anyone thinks about it long enough, they'll understand that the rule of judges, the rule of men, is a very dangerous place to be. Yeah, very unpredictable. Where do we need to begin? Um, putting government back in its place is certainly something most conservatives, I would say, are interested in doing, restoring a culture of virtue, a a word that's uh, long been lost. Where do we begin to move back into the right direction? I I appreciated your describing how we um, engage the culture. We're more comely and patient and persuasive. But where do you suggest we begin? Well, when it comes to restoring a culture of virtue, we must start in our own homes, in our own families. We have to train our kids to discern truth and to honor virtue because, you know, if we're not teaching them these things at home, that vacuum that we're creating will be filled by our very worldly 
culture, a culture that they're going to venture into. And, you know, the, it's going to be the water that they swim in. And that culture is teaching them that there is no objective truth. There is no right or wrong. They should follow their hearts and do whatever feels good to them at the moment. We have to train them to recognize that for the garbage that it is and to reject it. Now, for listeners who are interested in learning more about the National Legislative um, uh, Convention of the States Project, where can they get information? I would encourage everyone listening to visit conventionofstates.com. There's all kinds of information there. There are videos, you know, short and easy videos to watch a ton of good information. I would encourage everyone to find out more. Go on and sign the petition if this is something you're interested in and get involved with our massive grassroots team that is nationwide. Again, the title of the book, Restoring America's Soul, Advancing Timeless Conservative Principles in a Wayward Culture. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Have a nice evening. You too. Rita Dunaway, as a constitutional attorney, serves as the National Legislative Strategist for the Convention of the States Project. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. My next guest, Amy Swearer, she points out that any credible doctor will say that having the right diagnosis is important. If a patient receives the wrong diagnosis, he's almost certain to be uh, begin the wrong treatment. And that can mean not just that the patient doesn't get any better, but that the treatment actively harms him. Well, she writes on the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of the Parkland shooting, um, the discussion that followed whether or not the prescriptions that have been made are actually the ones that are going to um, correctly diagnose the problem. Well, Amy is a legal policy analyst in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Once again, she joins us to talk on this one-year anniversary of the tragic Parkland, Parkland shooting. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining us. Georgine, thanks for having me. Well, there was a lot of discussion at that time and on previous occasions where there has been uh, a shooting like this, particularly in a school, and you point out in your article, and we'll perhaps talk about this, it happens far fewer than we are, we tend to believe. But nonetheless, uh, there was a lot of discussion about how to prevent this from happening again. Let me just ask you generally, how did that discussion go in terms of coming up with constructive ways that are actually meaningful and are going to have an impact on the likelihood of a, a repeat of Parkland? Well, the, the first thing we had to do was figure out what the scope of the problem was. Just like with that same medical analogy, uh, if you don't know what the symptoms are and you're giving a, a wrong diagnosis, it, it's hard to come up with an uh, ineffective treatment. And so we, we had to look at you know, how often is this happening? What factors do these types of shootings have in common? Uh, in, in terms of thwarted school shootings, what went right there? Uh, so these were things that we had to look at first. And so that's actually where the conversation began, was making sure that we had a correct diagnosis uh, and that we were accurate in terms of what symptoms, if you will, we're actually seeing in the United States. One of the things you point out is the fact that uh, the perception is that the United States is suffering from an epidemic of school shootings and other types of gun-related violence. Is that accurate as we're trying to appropriately diagnose the patient, if you will? Uh, no, and, and that's a very fortunate thing that, that we should all uh, be grateful for, is that these are very extraordinary and rare events. Uh, now, it doesn't feel like that sometimes because they, they tug at our heartstrings, they are 
devastating. They have these mm-hmm. deep impact on the American conscience. Uh, and so it feels like these are happening all the time. But when you look at the data, they're, they're incredibly rare. Uh, and it is extraordinarily unlikely uh, that students are going to be affected by a Parkland-style mass shooting in any given year. Um, and in fact, uh, when you look at the data, our nation's schools are getting progressively safer from these types of, of violent deaths on school property. Uh, even just from the 1990s, uh, schools are, in terms of violent deaths, about four times safer. Uh, fewer students are dying. And so even though it feels like uh, this is an all-encompassing problem, it really isn't. It's, it's a very narrow and specific problem that rarely occurs. Well, let's talk about the, the treatment plans that have been uh, discussed to try to avoid any events like this in the future. One is too many. We've had 17 young people who, as well as faculty, who lost their lives one year ago. Um, what are some of the treatment plans that have been suggested and how well are we doing at really understanding the problem so that we can do the right things to prevent it from happening moving forward? Well, unfortunately, a lot of the most commonly proposed uh, gun control measures don't address the real issues, in part because they're, they're taking a wrong view of, of what's actually happening. So when you look at things like uh, semi-automatic rifle bans uh, or raising the, the age for purchasing guns, what they're not taking into account is that most of these school shooters are not actually buying their own guns, uh, and they're not generally using these types of weapons. They're they're generally taking handguns and shotguns uh, that were lawfully purchased by parents or or by friends uh, that they had ready access to at home. Uh, Further, not only is it not addressing that problem, but it's not addressing the reality uh, of the fact uh, that even even if you ban these sorts of rifles, you still have other Uh, other firearms, such as handguns and and shotguns, that are actually right now more likely to be used. Um, So unfortunately, just too many of these measures are aimed at at problems that really aren't problems. Another of the prescriptions has been raising the age of purchasing guns, and you sort of touched on that, but I want to invite you to speak more specifically to it. Sure. So the real problem with this is that by raising the minimum age for buying guns to 21, you're severely restricting the the fundamental rights of law-abiding young adults. When people are 18, 19, 20 years old, uh, we consider them full-fledged citizens. They can vote. uh, They they can serve on juries. They can serve in the armed forces. uh, They can get married. A lot of people at 18, 18, 20 have kids of their own. Uh, But by raising this this age limit, we'd be restricting their access to, to exercising a fundamental right. And at the same time, it's not addressing uh, the, the root of the problem. So again, most of these school shooters are not buying their own weapons. Uh, so they're, they're not going down the street you know, and, uh, to, to a licensed dealer and saying, here's my ID, you know, I'm 18, 18, 20 years old. A lot of them already are not old enough to buy their own guns, and they're getting their guns uh, from, from either family members or from friends. Uh, and so by assuming that, you know, well, they just can't buy guns that'll solve the problem, it's not addressing the fact that they're not buying those guns in the first place. Well, it raises the question then, how are they gaining access to weapons that are lawfully um, owned by family members or friends where they have ready access for these these purposes? Now, one of the things we've also been hearing is universal background checks, that that would essentially uh, prevent anyone who shouldn't have a gun from obtaining one or having access to one. 
Well, again, you run into the same problems here. So it's it's well intended, uh, of course. You know, no one uh, no one seriously is in favor of of dangerous individuals accessing guns. Uh, but again, if these school shooters are not buying their own weapons, but are instead taking them or, or borrowing them or, or otherwise getting access to them um, from people who have bought them legally, background checks can't address that uh, because it's not meant to fill that gap. It's, it's meant to prevent people with disqualifying histories from purchasing those guns uh, and not from, from taking them from, from friends or family members. Um, so again, it's, it's just looking in the wrong direction. What about the uh, the suggestion that high uh, capacity magazines be banned with uh, capacities over ten rounds? Uh, so I'd like to, to start by by saying that when people talk about high capacity magazines, they're actually just talking about um, factory standard magazines. A lot of commonly owned uh, firearms in the United States utilize fifteen, twenty, thirty round magazines, um, and so they're not abnormally high. They're, they're actually just commonly owned magazines. Um, but that being said, there have been studies that have looked at this, that given given the time frame it takes to simply reload uh, or use another weapon, there's really no effect on the deadliness of these shootings. Uh, even some of the, the shootings that we've seen that have been the most deadly, such as at Virginia Tech, it involved rather low capacity handguns that the individual just brought multiple guns and reloaded. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's addressing a problem that really isn't a problem. Uh, so the, the problem with these shootings is not that, oh, they had 15 rounds instead of 10 rounds. It's that you had people in the middle of a mental health crisis who were still able to, to access guns through, through other means. Now that we're almost out of time, but that brings us to one of the, the primary focuses of dealing with these kinds of shooting, and that is focusing on mental health. Has the result of Parkland and other shootings been that there is a greater focus on mental health and taking seriously, uh, which was not the case this time around, um, any uh, warning signs that might have been might be seen? Well, I, I certainly hope so. Uh, we, we do know that, that through our research, there have been a, a quite high number of thwarted school shooting attempts uh, where everything that went wrong in Parkland went right, where individuals saw these warning signs, saw people in the, in the midst of, of personal or mental health crises and alerted authorities, and then authorities did something about it. Um, so those are two very important things that we know work. Uh, we've seen them in practice stop these events from happening. Um, and, and also, the, the thing I like to point out is that gun control can't help uh, treat mentally ill persons. Mentally ill persons who are struggling with mental health crises and social crises, they need actual treatment. And, and so by focusing just on guns and, and demonizing guns, it takes away from this, this more important conversation about how do we help these people as individuals get the help that they need. Well, Amy Swearer, thank you so much for, uh, for talking with us. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. Now, Amy is a legal policy analyst in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. She also wrote on the role of mental illness in mass shootings and suicides for The Daily Signal. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Amazon announced today that it's turning back on its plans to build 
its second headquarters in New York City. The company said in a statement earlier today, the move comes after backlash from lawmakers, notably Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who bemoaned the project. After much thought and deliberation, we've decided not to move toward uh, move forward, rather, with our plans to build a headquarters for Amazon in Long Island City, Queens, the Seattle-based Amazon said in its release. For Amazon, the commitment to build a new headquarters requires positive, collaborative relationships with state and local elected officials who will be supportive over the long term. While polls show that 70 percent of New Yorkers support our plans and investment, Um, A number of state and local politicians have made it clear that they oppose our presence and will not work with us to build the type of relationship that are required to uh, go forward with the project we and many others envisioned in Long Island City, the statement said. Well, the company added that it is disappointed to have reached that conclusion after investing a lot of time arriving at a, a conclusion. Um, We are deeply grateful to Governor Cuomo, Mayor de Blasio and their staffs who are enthusiastic and graciously uh, had enthusiastically and graciously invited us to build in New York City and supported us during the process. The company continued in a statement provided uh, to uh, de Blasio said that New York City gave Amazon an opportunity and it threw away that opportunity. Well, it was essentially made to feel quite unwelcome. You have to be tough to make it in New York City. We gave Amazon the opportunity to be a good neighbor, to do business in the greatest city in the world, de Blasio said in a statement. Instead of working with the community, Amazon threw away that opportunity. We have the best talent in the world, and every day we're growing a stronger and more fairer economy for everyone. If Amazon can't recognize uh, what that's worth, its uh, competitors will. Well, Well, that remains to be seen. The opposition against uh, the headquarters had been uh, mounting in recent months. In December, for example, Amazon executives were uh, grilled and jeered at a New York City council meeting over that deal. Earlier this month, reports surfaced that Amazon was reconsidering its plans for the New York City office, which led to cheers from Ocasio-Cortez. Can everybody, can everyday people come together and effectively organize against creeping overreach of one of the world's biggest corporations. Yes, they can, the freshman lawmaker tweeted. Well, she and others were successful, but the uh, victory by progressives there helped the city wave goodbye to some 25,000 jobs. Now, my guess is some of the residents there were looking forward to the opportunities that Amazon might bring. The announcement that it will uh, cancel its plans to build its major office uh, complex in Long Island is a huge defeat for the, the uh, governor, for the mayor, who staked their political capital on the high-profile deal, but was sabotaged by others who did not want Amazon there. And they're certainly entitled to reject uh, having the company come, but 25,000 jobs is a lot. Mark Alexander, writing for the Patriot Post, referred to the Green New Deal as the red old deal recycled as Green New Deal. And he writes, first quoting Patrick Henry in 1775, It is natural to man to indulge in the illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beasts. Again, Patrick Henry, 1775. Mark Alexander says this, marketing experts insist that the words green and new deal invoke a favorable consumer response. So do the words rainbows and unicorns. The Democrat Party so-called Green New Deal, better known as the Rainbows and Unicorns Resolution of 2019, he suggests, is, as I wrote previously, like a watermelon, green on the outside, but red on the inside. It's the ludicrous millennial effluence uh, of the, the Leninist Earth Day mindset. 
This behemoth climate change charade is, again quoting Mark Alexander, as are all others about the implementation of socialist economic policies. That consequence is evidence in the fact that the absurd mandates of the GND, as outlined um, uh, elsewhere, which was quickly removed from the public um, view, would result in catastrophic worldwide economic collapse. Uh, GND, the Green New Deal, is so colossally asinine that it's difficult to know where to start. So let's go back to the beginning with a brief assessment of what ensued. This example is abject eco-fascist ignorance was fronted by the new face of the Democratic Party as DNC Chairman Tom Perez described Miss Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the leftist millennial heartthrob who arrived in Congress just three weeks ago. Perez must think Democrat voters are idiots and will buy into the fresh-faced facade. Her sycophant left media admirers now refer to her simply as AOC, which which perhaps fittingly is also an initialism for American organized crime, which is neither here nor there. She and her cohort, Senator Edward Markey, but both chronically manifesting Trump derangement syndrome, described their plans as a national, social, industrial and economic mobilization at a scale not seen since World War II, attempting to frame it as an extension of FDR's failed New Deal policies. Their uh, Green New Deal is the latest demo big lie for fundamentally transforming the United States of America, a masterpiece of propaganda backed by the usual socialist deniers. But Ocasio-Cortez may ultimately be a socialist contagion. Wall Street Journal political analyst Kimberly Strassel declared, by the end of the Green New Deal resolution and accompanying fact sheet, I was laughing so hard I nearly cried. If a bunch of GOPers plotted to forge a fake Democratic bill showing how uh, bonkers the party is, they could not have done a better job. It is beautiful, end quote. While it may be laughable, it's no laughing matter. Andrews uh, goes on to say, while it may be laughable, the GND, uh, GND, the Green New Deal, is not the stuff of dreams, but of socialist-induced nightmares. Democrat Party neophytes romanticize such nightmares, refusing to accept the reality that socialist governments like those of the USSR and most recently Venezuela are destined to empower tyrants and usher in economic calamity before they inevitably fail. Columnist David Harsinyi Uh, outlined some of the most insane requirements of the New Deal, including its mandate to ban affordable energy, eliminate nuclear energy, eliminate 99% of cars, gut and rebuild every building in America, and eliminate air travel and substitute for rail, which coincidentally California just killed. Of course, it's replete with social welfare objectives to guarantee a job for people willing to work and those unwilling, and housing, free education, health Uh, Healthy food for all. You can read more details if you read the New Deal. Notably, the Bezos Washington Post refused to do any of the vaunted fact checking. We won't be awarding any Pinocchios in this um, kerfuffle. Enter Donald Trump on the heels of his well-received State of the Union in which he declared here in the United States, we are alarmed by new calls to adopt socialism in our country. We are born free and we will stay free. Tonight we renew our resolve, he said at the time, that America will never be a socialist country. He was uh, quick to offer an acerbic endorsement of the Green New Deal. I think it is very important for the Democrats to press forward with their Green New Deal. It would be great for the so-called carbon footprint to permanently eliminate all planes, cars, cows, oil, gas in the military, even if no other country would do the same. Brilliant, he said. Well, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell followed up with a commitment to call for a vote. He's been soundly criticized for having done just that, referring to it as a stunt. Again, quoting Mark Alexander, calling the red old deal recycled as the green new deal. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Really, do I have to come back? I was enjoying the song. All right. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe says that after President Trump fired his boss, FBI Director James Comey, there was, in fact, discussion within the Department of Justice about invoking the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office. Well, last year, the New York Times reported that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein discussed recruiting cabinet members to invoke the 25th Amendment. McCabe confirmed the report in a new interview with 60 Minutes host Scott Pelley, who replayed uh, or rather relayed what McCabe told him on CBS this morning today. There were meetings at the Justice Department at which it was discussed whether the vice president and a majority of the cabinet could be brought together to remove the president of the United States under the 25th Amendment. In a statement released by the Justice Department, Rosenstein said McCabe's account of the discussion of invoking the 25th Amendment was inaccurate and factually incorrect. The president responded with a pair of tweets, as the president often does later uh, Thursday morning. Disgraced F. Uh, FBI acting director pretends to be a poor little angel when, in fact, he goes on from there. While many of the top FBI brass were fired, forced to leave or left, McCabe's wife received big dollars from the Clinton people for her campaign. He gave Hillary a pass and he goes on from there. Well, the discussions occurred between the time of Comey's firing in May of 2017 and the appointment of eight days, uh, the appointment eight days later of Special Counsel Robert Mueller to oversee the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Now, according to The Times, Rosenstein also suggested that he secretly record the president in the White House. Uh, Rosenstein uh, disputed that account, and a Justice Department official said he made the remark sarcastically. But McCabe told Pelley that Rosenstein did offer to wear a wire uh, that was made more than once and that he ultimately took it to the lawyers at the FBI to discuss. McCabe, who was uh, named acting director of the bureau after Comey's firing, launched obstruction of justice and counterintelligence investigations into whether Trump obstructed justice by firing Comey. He told Pelley he did so in order to preserve the FBI's Russian probe in, in case there was an effort by Trump to terminate it. I was very concerned, he said, that I was able to put the Russian case on Uh, Absolutely solid footing in an indelible fashion. Uh, McCabe said that there were uh, that were I uh, removed quickly or reassigned or fired that the case could not be closed or vanish in the night without a trace. McCabe's comments come ahead of the release of his new book. Coincidentally, the threat, how the FBI protects America in the age of terror and Trump due out next week. In an excerpt of the book uh, published on Thursday in the Atlantic, McCabe describes a phone call he received from the president on his first full day on the, on the job as acting director of the FBI. According to McCabe, Trump told him that he had hundreds of messages from FBI people saying how happy they are that I fired Comey. You know, boy, it's incredible. It's such a great thing. And he goes on from there. Well, McCabe was eventually fired in March of 2018, less than two days before he would have collected a full early pension for his FBI career. Andrew McCabe fired, Trump tweeted on the day of his dismissal. A great day for the hardworking men and women of the FBI, who apparently were very excited about having him on the job, according to an earlier conversation. A great day for democracy, the president concluded. Well, Trump has since um, railed against McCabe dozens of times on Twitter. He's lied, lied, lied. McCabe was totally controlled by Comey. McCabe is Comey. He exclaimed uh, last April, no collusion, all made up by this den of thieves and lowlifes. The book is out. Um, Soon, and we'll see how credible his version of events and his concern 
uh, might have been. Meanwhile, the Portland City Council voted three to two on Wednesday to withdraw the city from the Federal Bureau of Investigation's anti-terrorism task force, citing a deep distrust in the program's ability to root out terrorism while upholding residents' civil rights. So I guess the city of Portland is going to manage uh, terrorism threats on its own. Wednesday's vote also represents the first major policy victory for Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, a longtime criminal justice reform advocate who was uh, sworn on to the council in January. She had pledged a with uh, a withdrawal from the task force would be among her first priorities in office. She fulfilled that today. When we talk about one Portland, a Portland where everyone is respected, we cannot in good conscience continue our engagement with the Joint Terrorism Task Force, she said. The decision to withdraw was close with Commissioners Amanda Fritz, Chloe Udaley, and Hardesty voting in support. Mayor Ted Wheeler and Commissioner Nick Fish opposed. I cannot support a policy that appears to value politics and ideology over the safety of Portland, Wheeler said. He He called Wednesday in or out um, a decision, uh, a false choice that did not take into account commissioners ability to modify the city's agreement with the FBI to add new oversight measures and to uh, allay concerns of misconduct. It was simply a yay or nay. If working alongside our intelligence and law enforcement partners is no longer the plan, what is the plan? Wheeler said Wheeler, of course, being the mayor of Portland. Fritz Udaly and Hardesty said that uh, they were not convinced city membership in the task force was to Portlanders benefit. There is no evidence that participation had made Portland safer. Fritz said, do you feel safer today than you did five years ago? Udaly asked the audience at City Hall ending by saying, I don't. I don't feel safer now that the connection is completely severed, but she didn't ask me. Military families testified on Wednesday about slum-like conditions in some privatized-based housing. They allege contrib- uh, contributes to disease and birth defects. Crystal Cornwall, a Marine spouse and member of the Safe Military Housing Initiative, appeared before Senate lawmakers to describe her experience with families who live in unsuitable conditions in homes built by private contractors on military bases. I have felt the helplessness of a fellow Marine Corps spouse as she held her newborn and sobbed while we stood under a collapsing moldy ceiling in her home at Camp Lejeune. Uh, She uh, said, filled with uh, concern, I listened in horror as families at Camp Pendleton told of mice eating through pacifiers and their baby's cribs and electrical outlets catching fire due to wiring issues. Well, this is, I think, virtually everyone would agree, unacceptable for housing provided to military personnel. Well, conditions on U.S. military bases were so bad in 1996 that the military privatized 99 percent of base housing. Contractors moved in, which seemed like the good idea at the time, a good deal for the government. But some outraged military families argued the contractors have acted like slumlords. And while the Pentagon has insisted there are channels for military families to resolve tenant issues, some who testified said the chain of command failed them. Over and over again, Secretary of the Army Mark T. Esper and Chief of Staff of the Army General Mark Miley, they issued a statement saying that they were deeply troubled to learn about the conditions of some of the homes and presumably will uh, act on that at some point very soon. New Jersey Democratic Senator Cory Booker is not only a potential 2020 presidential candidate, he is a vegan who says the world can't sustain people eating meat. So I suppose if he becomes the next president of the United States, he'll manage that for us. Uh, Booker told the February issue of Veg News or Vague News, I'm not sure which, uh, that he became a vegetarian in 1992 and after a few days of trying the new lifestyle, he said, oh my gosh, I will never go back to eating meat. He made the decision to go vegan in 2014. Senator Booker speaks after the uh, uh, 
the trend uh, and many protesters suggesting that this ought to be the wave of the future. Booker told the vegan uh, news source, I remember my last non-vegan meal was Election Day, November 2014. If Booker does manage to win the Democratic Party presidential nomination and then the general election, he'd be the first vegan to do so. The potential candidate is also a fan of New York Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Green New Deal, which would like to eliminate uh, cows who produce, well, methane from the American landscape. He compared the widely lampooning, lampooned and sweeping environmental plan to winning World War II. So slaughtering cows who no longer produce methane is like winning World War II. In their response to the Green New Deal, the Food and Environment Reporting Network favorably mentioned the document's commitment to investing in sustainable farming and land use practices that increase soil health and building a more sustainable food system that ensures universal access to healthy food that presumably would not include meat. The progressive senator doesn't think veganism is just appropriate for his private life. He'd like everyone to embrace the diet because he believes the world can't keep providing Providing enough beef and pork to satisfy meat cravings. You see the planet Earth moving towards uh, what is the standard American diet, he told Vague News. Um, we've uh, seen this massive increase in consumption of meat produced by the industrial animal agriculture industry. The tragic reality is this planet simply can't sustain billions of people consuming industrially produced agricultural animals. Uh, because of environmental impact, it's just not possible as China, as Africa move toward consuming meat the same way America does because we just don't have enough land. Well, I think he's mischaracterized the situation, but nonetheless, a lot of people seek their protein by sources other than meat. But that's another story. In addition to convincing the message, um, the masses rather, to give up meat, Booker has other legislative goals that would interfere with America's eating habits. Legislatively, I want to continue to be a part of a movement of folk who are fighting against corporate interests that are undermining the public good and the public welfare. Booker went on to explain that he aims to continue supporting bills that are about public health, whether it is pumping in all those antibiotics into animals that are literally threatening the safety of Americans. He also believes cramming too many pigs into barns is harmful and violates our collective value as a country. So there are lots of good cookbooks out there with recipes. You might want to start now looking for them. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today, of course, is Valentine's Day, and that means something to some people, less to other people. Is it a big deal at your house, Clark? I'm guessing not so much as the Especially now, it's the middle of the week, and it's hard to do anything special. Is that a big deal at your house? Yeah, it's it's kind of that middling yeah. type of holiday. Yeah, uh, same for us. Uh, Dan asked me when I spoke to him earlier today, are you up for going out to dinner? And quite frankly, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> really? You know, you really should be, but I'm not feeling that well. So I thought, nah, I don't want to waste a really good dinner when I'm just picking at it. But the the sentiment was very sweet, and I'm I'm grateful for that. Um Card exchange, that's about all I need. The fun thing for me is decorating my mother's apartment. I got up early this morning and, you know, I go whole hog. In fact, we, uh, Dan and I, agreed that our investment in this holiday would go for her. So she gets the chocolates and the flowers and the balloons and all that stuff. So um, that's pretty fun. But it's not that big a day for uh, for us. Pretty much expressing love through life is what we do every day in a, our household, or at least we attempt to do it. Sometimes we're better at it than others. We don't need an 
a date on the calendar for that purpose, although any excuse to be especially nice to each other is always welcome. Well, I noted that one man who uh, had gone to work uh, at a new place um, just thought, man, this has to be the best place on earth to work. It was his first day, um, and things went hilariously wrong because he misinterpreted what was, we learned later, was a mistake. Um, The guy showed up at work, and the area where he was to work There was a beautiful bouquet. In fact, he's holding it and he posted pictures of his workplace and the bouquet of flowers. They're beautiful. These are not your grocery store flowers. These are kind of old roses and a really beautiful kind of antique uh, color. So he's thinking, you know, we've uh, I've got this new job. um, But this little silly story emerged because he misinterpreted what was there. Now, back in October, this wasn't Valentine's Day, but, you know, flowers are involved. John Kenya, he started a new job at a digital marketing agency in San Francisco, and he took to Twitter to share a sweet surprise that he found on his desk on his first day. It was a gorgeous bouquet of flowers. I mean, how nice is that? It's your first day at work. You're meeting new people, and there's a bouquet of flowers on your desk. I just assumed they were kind of part of the whole first day experience. I was like, and I'm quoting, because I don't say I was like, but get it. wow, this day just keeps getting better and better. And he told BuzzFeed of the initial reaction to finding the flowers. Well, of course, he wasn't going to keep that to himself, his new coworkers that he's just getting to know. He wanted them to know that he was grateful. There was no card on it. So he assumed it was probably from everyone. And he wanted to express his gratitude. Well, according to the outlet, um, Kenya The manager didn't know where the flowers uh, had come from. There was no card attached, but the newest employee accepted the mystery gift without question. I mean, they were on his desk. First uh, first day um, feels, he wrote. A smiling Kenya took to Twitter. He shared two photos of himself with a new office space, pointing out the flowers. And, you know, it was just a beautiful thing. He is beaming with the blossoms in a post that's since gone, um, well, viral, as they say, some 13,000 hits. Well, fast forward to the present. And that man's office manager made a shocking confession at a recent holiday party. The famous flowers had not actually been a gift for Kenya. Well, the flowers were actually misplaced on this guy's desk on his first day, and they were meant for someone else. But they had seen him go around the office um, having this mini photo shoot, and they just felt too bad to say anything that these flowers are mine and they're not yours. So they <laughs> just let him keep them. Finding the... Um, Uh, The turn of events to be hilarious. He came clean on his Twitter uh, account saying, I found out these flowers were misplaced on my desk and supposed to be for someone else going on maternity leave because they don't give flowers to new hires. But they saw me taking pics with them and felt too bad to take them away from me. Oh, he tweeted earlier this month. Well, in the days since the good natured uh, guy has admitted his mistake, he's uh, gone viral online for making that admission, racking up some 263,000 likes and more than 700 uh, comments, pictures of uh, the nice-looking young fellow with a beautiful bouquet of flowers that were not intended for him. Now, there were flowers delivered to the station here today. None of them had my name on them, and they all sadly had cards, but I was prepared to just claim any one of them at any time as my own. But alas, it was not meant to be. Well, perhaps life was hard for the 74-year-old Don Benson. Perhaps death was easy. The Navy veteran died recently. He was homeless, had no family. But then the young ladies from Ursuline Academy in Dedham stepped in. It's an opportunity to honor a man who served his country. The Ursuline senior Isabella 
Perietta said, well, the school decided to give Don Vincent a full funeral mass. So the girls all filed into the gymnasium. The priest came in. Bill Lawler from the West Roxbury Funeral Home led the casket in. Homelessness is a big issue in this country. It's something we should all pay attention to, one student said. Uh, The Navy sent reserves to play taps to fold an American flag, which was presented to the school's president. Then they all saluted the man who struggled after his years in the Navy, as many do. A man who bounced from shelter to shelter, but asked nothing of people who passed him by. He may have been homeless, but today we were his family. I hope he rests peacefully, says senior Christina Canala. And when it was all over, perhaps Don Benson provided something to the young ladies, a lesson about life. I felt honored, said another student, because he served his country. He served us. We should not forget that. So he received his flowers in a very different way uh, from these schoolgirls. Speaking of the Navy, and this was uh, in Dedham, which, of course, is not here. Um, my nephew has been given a, a captaincy. My sister and her husband are going to be flying off to witness that great honor. He's going to have his own um, I'm not sure what you call it. Is it a ship? Is it a boat? I'm not sure what you call it, but a pretty big deal. He's uh, served in the Navy for nearly a decade and so proud um, to see him rising in the ranks and for his family to be able to join him for that great honor. I'll bring you up to date when we learn more about um, the whole thing, but just thrilled uh, that a family member is serving in the U.S. Navy. uh, And I hope that he will be honored throughout his life as he is serving well his country And uh, I'm just really proud of him. Well, tomorrow, of course, is Friday. And typically on Fridays, we try to lighten up. We do cover uh, headline news. So if there's breaking news stories, we'll certainly uh, provide those headlines for you and try to provide a a bit of context where possible. Uh, But otherwise, we're going to look at the lighter side of the news. So we're looking forward to that and hope you will plan to to join us. I want to remind you that my interview in the previous hour with Rita Dunaway, Restoring America's Soul, that interview and all interviews that are done here on the Georgine Rice Show can be heard on our podcast. You can go to kpdq.com, look for the podcast for the Georgine Rice Show, and you can listen to that segment or, for that matter, any segment of the Georgine Rice Show, and the podcast goes back uh, some way. So if you want to check that out. That's the way to uh, to do it, that and other interviews. Also want to remind you that Gospel Sing Live is coming to uh, the Salem area in August, and you are invited to be a part of this uh, landmark event. Now, Clark has been the voice of Gospel Sing for a number of years. It's been around for 50 years. He's the latest uh, voice that's associated with the program. It's the longest-running program on KPDQ, one of the most popular programs on the station. And so we're just excited uh, to take this opportunity to celebrate uh, Gospel Sing. And there's going to be some great performers coming to the area uh, who will be presenting gospel music. And this will be at the same location where uh, Fish Fest takes place at Riverfront Park in Salem, Oregon. It's an evening of great Southern gospel music in celebration of 50 years of the gospel sing. Wes Hampton, best known as a tenor uh, since 2005 with a Gaither vocal band, Tribute Quartet, the Booth Brothers, they'll all be performing. Tickets are now on sale. They went on sale on Monday uh, morning. You can go to kpdq.com and uh, purchase your tickets. Again, that uh, date is Friday, August the 16th, 7 o'clock p.m. at Riverfront Park in Salem, an evening of great Southern gospel music in celebration of over 50 years of the gospel sing. And congratulations to you, Clark, uh, the current voice of gospel sing.
Once again, tomorrow we will take a look at the lighter side of the news. I hope you will join us. Uh, we'll also cover breaking news as those headlines emerge. I want to thank James Blinn for producing from afar and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. We really appreciate it. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.